Hey, one more thing before you go. In this episode, we're going to hear the personal journey of a man that survived a rare form of cancer, only to have that cancer return with a vengeance. We're going to learn how embracing the hard, difficult, and uncomfortable times we all experience in our lives can be used to make us stronger and more determined. We're also going to know what motivates him every day to live life to the fullest. I'm your host, Michael Hurst, and this is The Thing About 10 Principles to an Extraordinary Life. My guest is Terry Tucker. He has been an NCAA Division I college basketball player, a Citadel cadet, hospital administrator, an undercover narcotics investigator, a SWAT team hostage negotiator, a high school basketball coach, and a cancer warrior. Welcome to the show, Terry. Thank you, Michael. I'm happy to be here. I'm looking forward to it. It's quite a journey that you are embarking on, have been embarking on, I shouldn't say are embarking in, that you're still on that journey. I am. People always ask me, you know, what are you going to do when you grow up? Because I, I mean, I seem to go from job to job to job. But uh, yeah, I, I've really been, I look at it as fortunate uh, to kind of have done the things that I was able to do to, to live my passions in a lot of ways. So I, I'm, I'm pretty excited about all these things we're going to talk about. That's pretty cool. Well, let's talk a little bit about you. Let's get to know you just a little bit more. So where'd you grow up? Sure. I, I was born and raised in Chicago. I'm the oldest of three boys. Um, I'm six foot eight. You can't tell that, obviously, sitting down. But uh, I played basketball at the Citadel. I have a brother that's six foot seven who pitched for Notre Dame. I have a brother that's six foot six that was a Division II All-American and was drafted by the Cleveland Cavaliers back in 1983. And then my dad was six foot five. So if you sat behind our family in church growing up, there wasn't a prayers chance you were going to see anything that was that was going on at all. Uh, um, athletics, obviously, specifically basketball, was an important part of my life growing up. Uh, I attended college at the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina on a basketball scholarship, despite having three knee surgeries in high school. And after college, I moved home to find a job. This was a time long before the Internet was available. And I was the first person in my family to graduate from college. And I was all set to make my mark on the world with my newly obtained business administration degree. And I, I look back on that now and think what a knucklehead I was. I, I, didn't, I didn't know anything back then. Fortunately, I was able to find that first job in the marketing department at Wendy's, uh, the, the hamburger chain. But unfortunately, I ended up living with my parents for the next three and a half years as I helped my mother care for my grandmother and my father, who were both dying of different forms of cancer. Um, my wife and I have been married for 27 years, and our only child, a daughter, is a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy and is a lieutenant in the Space Force. Um, however, we kind of alluded to this a little bit. In 2012, my courage, my faith, and certainly my resolve were put to the test when I was diagnosed with this rare form of cancer. Your cancer is uh, an extremely rare form, correct? It is. It's a, you know, and, and I learned more about melanoma than I wanted to learn. Um, I, I was diagnosed with a rare form of melanoma. Now, most of us know the type of melanoma that, you know, there's a, a mole or something on your skin, and, and that's the most prevalent kind. And then there's another form, which is the, the form that I have, which is, is relatively rare. There's about 6,500 people in the U.S. that are diagnosed with this form of, of cancer or melanoma every year. And it appears on the palms of your hands or on the bottom of your feet. And then there's even an, an even rarer form of melanoma that 
appears in the mucous membranes. So in your nose or your mouth or your anus or something like that. So there's, there's these different forms. There's also a form of cancer that appears in the nail or melanoma that appears in the nail beds. That is most likely probably for, I don't know how many years now, been lumped in with the type of cancer that I have on the palm of the hands or, or the bottom of the feet. But they're now kind of coming into the realization that it's sort of its own animal and and probably will be moved out of that category. And that'll just be a fourth type of melanoma that people can get. Well, that's really, I mean, that's kind of crazy. Yeah, most people think of melanoma. Um, I had a relative that had melanoma, but was little blotches on their arms and they just kind of right. burned, you know, went there and did something to take them off. Right. Somehow. Exactly. And and that's what people normally do. And, you know, I, I mean, when I first got this, I was like, well, I, I never laid out in the sun with my feet up in the air, you know, tan in the bottom of my feet. How did I possibly get this? And and there really is no really real reason as to why there's speculation that possibly trauma may have led to this form of cancer. But I can't ever remember hurting, you know, it was right underneath the, the third toe. I can't ever remember hurting that area in any way, shape or form. So who knows why it happened? It's really interesting. And the other members of your family that had cancer was a different type. Yeah, my dad um, died of breast cancer at uh, at a fairly early age. He was uh, fifty four, and it was back in nineteen eighty six. And they had no idea what to do back then with male breast cancer. They even um, they removed his testicles, thinking it was hormonal in the way it is in women. And, and that didn't do any good. But my dad, by the time my dad was diagnosed, he was he was pretty much stage four. And, you know, he was of the generation where men didn't go to doctors. And we literally, my brothers and I literally had to threaten him. And it's like, you know, you're going to the doctor. We're bigger than you. We're certainly stronger than you at this point in time. And he didn't fight us on it. But it, it was just a shame. I look back on that and think, you know, if you would have gone when you originally exhibited symptoms, who knows, maybe you could still be here. Maybe you could have seen me get married. Maybe you could have seen your granddaughter. But you know what? That's that was his journey. And, and that's what he chose to do. And, and that's that's something he's got to live with and something that we have to live with. And you just move on from it. Yeah, that's one thing that at least the listeners probably should understand that males can get breast cancer as well. And it's um, rare, but it does happen. And if you're experiencing any of those kind of symptoms, it would be wise to go see a doctor. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I always tell people, and I realize people are afraid, you know, if they think, oh, something's wrong. But I'm telling you, if you can catch cancer early with with the amount of, of drugs that are out there, with the amount of biologic agents now that are out there, and I, I we can speak about that if, if you want to, that you know, that I was put on that did nothing to the cancer, but were designed to rev up my body's immune system to actually attack it. Um, you know, there's so much out there and there's so much more every day that's happening. I, I mean, I look at chemotherapy now that my father was on. I mean, he he looked gray. He was blotchy. He lost his hair. I, I've been on chemotherapy. I didn't lose my hair. I did. I mean, they've come so far in improving the drugs that that are out there now and, and, and coming up with new drugs that I know people are scared, but, you know, take that fear and think about the people you love and, and go to your doctor. And even if it's bad news, you know what, the people you love, they'll be there for you. First step to failure is the one you never take. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, and cancer is, I mean, my father died of cancer at 39. 
so I can relate. He was very young age, but he has esophageal okay. uh, cancer yeah. along with cirrhosis. So it was a combination of both of those, you know, things. And prior to that, he'd had a lung worked on because of cancer. I lost both my grandparents on my mother's side. I lost two uncles, three cousins, and uh, my stepfather. And um, I had an aunt that just uh, had a lung removed for cancer, and my sister beat it twice. That's great. I'm, so that's good for her. I mean, I remember when I was a little kid, my my dad's father was a Chicago police officer from 1924 till 1954, smoked like a chimney. I mean, you never saw him without a cigarette. And he was kind of my inspiration. And not that I wanted to smoke, and I never did, but he was kind of my inspiration for being a police officer. You know, he was he was in Chicago during the whole Prohibition days, the whole gangster days, and Al Capone and all that kind of stuff was shot in the line of duty with his own gun, taking a murder suspect back to the... Um, the lockup. He was, he was shot in the ankle. It was not a, a life-threatening injury, but my dad always remembered that knock on the door. Uh, he wasn't old enough, but he remembers the stories my grandmother told, you know, Mrs. Tucker, please, you know, get your son. Your, your husband's been shot and uh, went down to the uh, to the hospital with him. But it, it, it's, I have all the Chicago Tribune articles in that from that time. And it's amazing. This individual was was tried. He'd, he'd actually killed a, robbed a bank, killed one of the tellers, wow. was tried, was convicted, and within six months of being convicted, was electrocuted in an electric chair at the Cook County Jail. Uh, I mean, Chicago didn't mess around. They didn't mess around back then. <laughs> it's the 1930s. <laughs> yeah, don't mess around. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool, actually. So your your motivation, as you said, was to become a police officer. You became a police officer in Cincinnati, right? Well, I started in um, in California. My when my wife and I got married, we moved to Santa Barbara, a beautiful area. And you know, when my wife was dating me when we got married, you know, I was a suit and tie, you know, eight to five Monday through Friday kind of guy. And I saw an ad uh, for the Santa Barbara Community College uh, that they you could take a class, and if you you pass the class, you become a reserve police officer. And I remember sitting at dinner one night and I said, you know, hon, um, what do you think about this? And she's like, you know what, if you want to do it, go ahead and do it. And I took the class and I got on with Santa Barbara PD and and I loved it. And it was I would work at my regular job all week. And then Friday night, I'd come home, change into my uniform, go to roll call, you know, and work for for 10 hours and then come home, be exhausted. But my wife said, you had this biggest smile on your face. So when our daughter was born and we moved back to the Midwest, uh, to Cincinnati, you know, it was like, hey, I'd like to do this full time. And she was incredibly supportive of me. I, I you know, I, I think of the things that I did, you know, undercover narcotics and SWAT. And, you know, she, she could tell you some stories about how the we were not a full time SWAT team. So we had pagers. And when the pager went off, the pager always went off Sunday at dinner time. You know, she had made a nice meal and the pager goes off and, oh, she would. It's like, I know you got to go, but <laughs> but yeah, she was incredibly supportive of, of me. And, and I had to leave law enforcement um, after 10 years in Cincinnati because of her. She lost her job and she's the primary breadwinner. And so I had to leave that. But, you know, you, you do what you do for your family. They're they're really the most important thing. I mean, I love being a cop, but it wasn't who I was. It's what I did for a living. I understand that. I do. Yeah. Yeah. Most of my listeners know, and the new ones that we're we obtain will 
come to understand we have a lot in common with regard to that as I'm a retired police sergeant. So I appreciate your service. Thank you. And you too. So 2012, the, one of the greatest challenges of your life began, right? Oh, the greatest. Yeah. Challenge of my life began in 2012 when I was diagnosed with this rare form of melanoma that presented on the bottom of my left foot. By the time the cancer was detected, it had metastasized to the lymph nodes in my groin. And as I said, uh, only about 6,500 people in the U.S. get this every year. And at the time, I was a high school basketball coach. So having a callus break open on the bottom of my foot, I really didn't give it much thought initially because I was on my feet a lot to practice and games and things. But when it didn't heal, I went to a, a friend of mine who was a podiatrist and he tried the traditional things of let's put some pads in your shoes and stuff like that. When that didn't work, he's like, you know, you might have a little cyst in there. And he did. He cut out a little cyst and he showed it to me. And it was a little like a, a sack with this white gelatin type of fat in it. And he's like, seen thousands of these, no big deal. I'll send it off to pathology, put a couple stitches in it. You'll be good as new in two weeks. Two weeks later, I get the call from him. And, and the more, as I said, he was a friend, the more he couldn't talk, the more frightened I became. And he eventually said, you know, Terry, I've been practicing for 25 years. I've never seen this form of cancer, but you have this rare form of melanoma. And I recommend that you be treated at MD Anderson, which is probably the premier cancer hospital in the world. People literally come from all over the world to be treated there. So I did. You know, I started down this journey. I had two surgeries to eliminate the tumor and all the lymph nodes in my groin. And I had a skin graft to close the wound where the cancer had been removed. But after I healed, I was put on a weekly injection of a drug called interferon to help keep the disease from coming back. And interferon, at least for me, was a, was a horrible, nasty, debilitating drug. And I took those weekly injections uh, for four years and seven months before the medication literally became so toxic to my body that I ended up in the intensive care unit with a fever of 108 degrees. I was fortunately, I ended up in the ER with a, at, a, at a level one trauma center, and they were great about stabilizing me before I could get to the ER because 108 degree fever is usually not compatible with being alive. And I remember oh, no. being so cold and just begging for warm blankets, and they were throwing the blankets off and literally packing me in ice to try to, to cool down my body. I remember lifting my head up and kind of looking down my body and it literally looked like the the hood of a car that had been in the sun all day. I was just just these waves and waves of heat. I, I kind of make the joke if I'd had some popcorn, we probably could have had a party because I'm sure I could have popped it right on my on my <laughs> abdomen. But wow, what a what a journey. I mean, did you get tell me more about this medication? I mean, what, so, what yeah. happened? Is it a weekly thing, a daily it was. thing? It was it was a, a a shot that I gave myself every week and it it basically gave me flu-like symptoms for two to three days every week after each injection. I lost 50 pounds during my therapy. There was a point where I was pretty sure I was so skinny that I could go hang gliding on a Dorito. You know, it was, it was oh. that kind of, kind of skinny. I was constantly nauseous, fatigued, and chilled. My ability to even taste food diminished. I could tell if something was salt, salty or sweet, but I couldn't tell if it was a piece of broccoli or a piece of steak or you know, ice cream or a piece of cake. So that was just, it was just constant. And, and this misery went on for over 1,660 days. And well, you counted everyone. I did. I, I really, I started from the day I, I started and I, from the day I finished. 
And I, I took that injection every week. I missed one week when I took my daughter on a on a college visit and I knew I couldn't be that debilitated. So I, I one week I, I didn't take it, but every other week I did. And one thing I learned during all my pain and suffering is that you have two choices. You can succumb to the debilitating discomfort and misery, or you can learn to embrace it and use it to make you a stronger and more determined individual. I chose the latter, but I certainly want your listeners to understand that there were days that I felt so poorly and I was in so much agony that I literally prayed to die. I just wanted out of this life. And each day was a struggle to use my mind to override the apathy and the distress that my body was feeling. And I realized pain and discomfort can beat you to your knees and keep you there if you let it. But I also came to appreciate that I could use my pain and suffering to make me a stronger and more determined individual. And this took place for over a thousand days straight. Yeah. I mean, it was basically like having the flu every week for almost five years. Did it obviously did it keep the cancer away, but it caused so many other side effects. It did. It kept, it kept it was the cancer detriment. away. And as soon as the <laughs> as soon as I stopped, the cancer came back. And as soon as you, soon as you stopped it, and then the, it is the drug itself interferon, is it a like a biologic? No, it's a it, it's it's not a biologic. It it's it's designed to kill anything in your body that doesn't belong in there. So the the positive side is for almost five years I never had a cold or the flu or anything because it it would literally go in there and kill anything that didn't belong. Ideally, being the the cancer as well. And and my doctor put me on this as she described to kick the can down the road. We're, we're just hoping to keep you alive. So that, you know, as long as possible, so we'll have more therapies and treatments that we can use to help you. And, and that was the whole idea behind it. And, and I know interferon had been used prior. Uh, I had a woman, uh, the grandmother of one of my players on my basketball team who had hepatitis and it was given to her to uh, get rid of her hepatitis. And I remember talking to her about it and she was only on it for like eight months and I thought, oh, I can do eight months. And I went back and talked to my oncologist. And I'm like, you know, I can do eight months. That'd be good. And she's like, I'd kind of like to see you on it for five years. And I looked at her like, so you want me to have the flu every week for five years? I'm like, you're nuts. I, I mean, I remember telling her that. And I said, you're, that's crazy. Then I ended up doing it. So, <laughs> And I know you've got a wife and a daughter. How did they, how did they react? It was, you know, when, when our daughter was, when I was diagnosed, our daughter was in high school and my wife and I made the decision very early on that we were going to tell her the truth, obviously age appropriate telling her the truth. But, um, we told her, we said, we'll tell you the truth. We're never going to lie to you. We're never going to sugarcoat it. We're never going to tell you that it's better than it is. And my wife is, is Norwegian and she is tough as nails. And, I would not still be here today if it wasn't for her. I mean, she she got me to the emergency room when I was having that 108 degree fever. And we can talk as, as we go on through that. I, I had some other issues with with blood clots and things like that, that if it hadn't been for her, I wouldn't be here right now. I, I, I thoroughly believe that. And, you know, I think for me, you know, the, I, I, I deal with physical pain. She deals with emotional pain. And I honestly believe that the emotional side of this is so much worse than the physical pain. I can deal with physical pain. I've learned to take physical pain and turn it inside and use it as fuel or energy to make me stronger. That's easy. 
it wasn't easy initially, but I mean, for me now it's easy, but for her to have to go through all this to say, you know what? I got to go to the hospital again. I got to go to the hospital again. I got to the hospital. What did the doctor say? Oh, the cancer's back. That, that up and down, that, that roller coaster, for lack of a better word, sucks. It, it, oh, it does it, suck. It's, yeah. it's lousy. And people, people forget it's really, really hard on the family members because the family member then becomes a caretaker. It is. Yeah. It is. And, and I always, you know, people, and, and I, I talk about this a little bit in, in the book that I write or that I wrote where, you know, and, and I've done this and, and you've probably done it. You know, somebody's having a procedure or surgery or whatever. And you're like, hey, if you need anything, let me know. And I, when I got cancer, I realized just what a cop out that is. Because you know what? I'm going through this major life altering illness, injury, whatever you want to call it. And I don't have time to think about ways for you to help me. But you know what? The same things you do at your house, taking out the garbage, cutting the grass, letting the dog out, going to the grocery store, preparing a meal, that has to be done at my house in addition to all this stuff. So don't, you know, don't sit on the sidelines and pretend you're playing in the game. If you want to actually help, then just tell the person what you're going to do. You know what? I'm going to come over and cut your grass. You know what? I'm going to go to the store for you today. Don't tell me if you need anything. Let me know. Because I remember after my first surgery, I did not have to stay in the hospital when they cut out the, the, the cancer on the bottom of my foot and they injected dye into the bottom and ran it up. The dye went up to the three lymph nodes in my groin that they removed to see if the cancer had spread, which it had. I get a call. I'm home 30 minutes. I get a call from my, my 90-year-old buddy, Bud, who'd been in World War II. He's like, can I come over for a minute? I won't stay long. It's like, sure, Bud, come on over. Ten minutes later, he's standing in our living room with a pan of cream cheese Danish and a fully cooked chicken that he bought at Costco. We've got dinner for that night and breakfast for the morning. He didn't ask if he, you know, what we needed. He just went out and did it. Here you go. I, I loved him for that. And uh, to this day, I wish he was still here. But, you know, that's the kind of thing we all need help. And, and, and don't, like I said, don't sit on the sidelines and pretend you're playing in the game just because you said, hey, if you need anything, let me know. I don't have time to let you know. Just go do something. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That that brought tears to my eyes just a little bit. So don't tell anybody. I won't. <laughs> well, they can't see us. See, that's I know. Good. <laughs> <laughs> that's the value of a podcast. That's right. <laughs> we have to paint them a picture. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really interesting. Uh, family are a very unique aspect to healing, and um, in in people's journeys, especially in your journey. And like my journey, if it wasn't for my family, I wouldn't be where I'm at right now. And the same thing with you. And sometimes it's forgotten. And unfortunately, sometimes we forget and allow our, and I'm not saying that you did this or that that I did. I may have complacent a couple of times myself, but we sometimes take it for granted. So I just want people to be aware. Don't take for granted that they're always going to be as a caretaker, that the I'm going to marry you for, you know, for better or for worse or for sickness and in health and blah, 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 because we have to be cognizant of the fact that that individual is still part of our lives, but the dynamic changes. So if anybody out there is listening that is experiencing this, please remember that your partner, your spouse, your children, your grandparents, your friends, who's ever there, 
they are there because they want to be, but don't take them for granted. Absolutely. Except, and, and I can't tell you how many times I asked my wife, just put me in a nursing home and get on with your life. You know, and and I, I feel bad about saying that, I'm, I'm, but I really kind of like, I am just such a burden. You know, I'm like, I don't want to be this burden to you. Just just put me away. And I would have done it. I, I mean, I would have gone to a nursing home without it, but, you know, she was like, you know, that wasn't even... I said it, you know, she's never hit me, but I'm sure she wanted to at that point in time. It's just like, shut up. I married you, good and bad, sickness and in health. This is just the bad time right now. So, Well, we, as you as a cop uh, previous, me as a cop previous, we're not used to people doing stuff for us. No. We're used to being the other end of that, see? So it's difficult to ask for help. It is. Did, did you learn anything during all your pain and your suffering? Yeah, I, I learned a lot, and and I and I have a I have a post-it note literally right in front of me here on my desk, and and it's it's three sentences, and I I see it every day, and it's really kind of what I've boiled down this whole almost nine-year experience now too. And the first one is just this: control your mind, or it will control you. And you know, like I said, I've learned to turn pain and suffering inside and use it to make me stronger. I, I, I didn't at the beginning, you know, I, I mean, I was scared. I, you know, I mean, there aren't, believe me, there, you know, this as a cop, you know, people used to ask you all the time, you know, are you afraid? And my response was always, any cop that tells you that they're not afraid is either lying to you or a fool. And fear, there's a great book out, but I don't know if you've had an opportunity to read it by Gavin De Becker, and it's called The Gift of Fear. And he consults with the Secret Service and a lot of federal agencies and stuff like that. And and I, from my perspective, and probably for yours as well, when we were in law enforcement, fear has kept a lot of cops alive. Um, I always remember the time I worked when I was in the narcotics unit. I remember a story from one of our, uh, one of the guys I worked with <clears throat> when he was in uniform, he went to a, a tip, a simple noise run. And he thought about stepping inside the apartment, but something told him not to do that. And he learned like a year later when he arrested one of the guys who was in the apartment, he said, there was a guy behind the door with an AK-47. If you would have stepped in, he would have shot you. And so, wow. you know, those things, I mean, I remember my partner and I, you know, we're going to, they sent us on a noise run. And she would say sometimes, you know, I got a bad feeling about this. Okay, we got to respect that. That's not, oh, it's a noise run. Tell somebody to turn their stereo down and their TV down. No, if, if that's the way you feel, we need to respect that. And, and so that's just something you, you learn, you know, to, to, to take that, that mind and you've got to control it. I mean, we can't say, oh my God, I'm scared to death. I can't do this. We, we have to control it, but your mind, it knows your fears. It knows your doubts. It knows your insecurities and it will play on those insecurities if you let it. So that's the first thing that I, that I've learned. The second thing is, and, and I've talked about this before, embrace your pain and suffering and use it to make you a stronger individual. I, I always tell people, you know what? You're, you're going to have a lot of pain, especially if you go through cancer and you have surgeries and chemo and all that kind of stuff. And you can do one of two things. You can try to run from it, but you'll never get away from it because it'll always be there. Or you can use it. You can turn it inside and use it as, as fire, as fuel, as energy to make you tougher, to make you stronger. And then the third thing that, that I've, I've learned is that as long as you don't quit, you can never be defeated. You know, I may die from this disease. As a matter of fact, I, I most likely will die from this disease. But as long as I don't quit trying, the, the disease isn't going to win. 
I'm always going to win, you know, and and it doesn't matter. So so those three things I see every day, those three things I internalize every day, and and I try to live those as as best as I can. Those are some, some really good insight. That's really good insight. From my own experience, I understand because pain can be a very debilitating, uh, crippling aspect of someone's life. And, you know, what kind of methodologies like did you use to help you turn that pain inside and to help your mind to overcome that? What did you what helps you? What motivated you? What did you do? I, I you know, I, I think a lot of things, you know, when when I'd been an athlete my whole life, you know, I, I had three knee surgeries when I was in high school. Um, the first two were before arthroscopic surgery was available. So I have the large zipper scar on the outside of my right knee. The second surgery, they took out 25 pieces of my bone and told me that I would never play basketball again and that I might not walk normally again. So, you know, when somebody's faced with something and, and you know, I was probably 15 years old when that happened. And really the only success I'd had in life was basketball. I, I was good at it. It was the one thing I was good at. I was a good student. I wasn't a great student. I, I didn't really apply myself. And I, I became so focused on basketball that when they said, you can't do this anymore, you won't be able to do this anymore. I'm like, <laughs> watch me, you know, and, and you know that as a police officer, you know what, we, we're going to win. It doesn't matter if we have to call 4,000 cops, we're going to win. We are going to resolve this situation. We're going to make this better for whoever called us or whatever. I, I, I mean, so we can't quit. We can't go home. We can't retire. I, I mean, you, you've got to deal with it. So, you know, you just, you get to the point where you have to, you know, you you just have to use your mind. And and one of the things I did a lot was I prayed and, and I tried to focus on other people. And I, I quickly learned that as much hell as I've been through, and I've been through a lot of hell, there are a lot of people that are going through a whole lot worse than I am. And so I tried to focus on that. It's like, you know what? Yeah, life's tough. You know what? Life sucks. Okay, so what? This is my life now. I I don't have the choice of saying I can't play it. I you know, this is the hand that I've been dealt. I have to play it. There there's a a, a great story that I like to tell when I speak to groups and I I I loved westerns growing up. And so my mom and dad would let me stay up and, and watch Gunsmoke or or uh, Maverick or my favorite was Wild Wild West. Well, in 1993 oh, yeah the movie Tombstone came out. And it's a movie based on really two characters, Wyatt Earp, who was a lawman, and John Doc Holliday, who was a dentist by trade, but pretty much was a, was a gunslinger and a card shark. And Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp, actually, they were two living, breathing human beings that actually existed on the face of the earth. They were not made up characters for the movie. But in this movie, at the very end, Doc is dying of tuberculosis in a sanitarium in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. And, and, and Doc did die in that sanitarium. He's buried in the Glenwood Springs Cemetery. And Wyatt, who'd been this lawman, at this point in his life is destitute. He has no money, has no job, has no prospects for a job. So he comes every day to visit Wyatt and the two men play cards to, to pass the time. And Doc's on his deathbed and, and there are two men are talking about what they want out of life. And, and Doc says, you know, I was in love with my cousin when I was younger, and she ended up joining a convent over the affair, but she's all that I ever wanted. And he looks at Wyatt and he says, what about you, Wyatt? What do you want? And Wyatt says, I just want to lead a normal life. 
And Doc's response, I think, is just classic. He looks at Wyatt and he says, there's no normal, there's just life. And get on with living yours. And I tell that story and I look at myself and I'm like, would I like to not have cancer? Oh my God, I, I would give a lot not to have cancer. But this is my life. Normal or not normal, this is my life. These are the cards that I've been dealt and I have to play it. I don't have a choice. So I always tell people, you know, you've, you've got to figure out your reason, your purpose for being on this earth. A lot of times when I talk to people, I talk to groups, I ask them, do you have any idea why you were put on this earth? And sometimes I'll take it a step further and ask them, do you know why you were born now? Why weren't you born 4,000 years ago or 25,000 years in the future? There's a reason you were put on this earth. And that reason involves finding and living your purpose. So, you know, I, I think it's it's real important that you and I both know a lot of people that I call dead. I mean, they get up every day, go through the motions, but they're literally dead. They just haven't fallen over yet. I didn't want to be one of those people. So I prayed a lot. I looked at other people and I thought, you know what? My life isn't as bad as that person or that person or whatever. And so, you know, that between what I learned as a basketball player, as a, as a cop, you know, you take all that stuff, you put it all together and you're like, you got two choices. You know, you can go off and die or you can live the best life you can with however many years you got left or however many days you have left. I chose to do the latter. That's outstanding. 100% true and very outstanding. I think that um, that's a, you know, we have to, we have to be grateful for what we have. We have to be grateful for where we are. We have to be positive with the fact that we, you know, you get up every morning yep. and there are people around you that love you yep. and there are people around that care about you. And you have to be grateful for that. You have to be grateful for the food that's on your table, the roof that's over your head, you know, the book that's on the shelf that you right. have. I mean, um, you and I know we've seen in our law enforcement career, I mean, you don't have to go very far to look at people that are, you know, they are what I call hopeless and helpless. They they have Absolutely. they have no hope for a better life. I mean, I remember interviewing countless suspects that I arrested who were, you know, drug dealer, 25-year-old kids and stuff like that. And it's like, I always like to talk to them because I, I like people. I, I like finding out what makes people tick. And I'd be like, you know, what are your goals? What are your dreams? You've got a 25-year-old kid who's like, I don't have any goals. I don't, I don't have, have any. Dreams. I mean, I'm probably going to be dead in the next couple of years anyway. So I'm just living large now because I know the next drug dealer is going to shoot me and take over my my area. And in Cincinnati, that happened all the time. Drug dealers killing drug dealers. It's happening in Chicago. Drug dealers killing drug dealers. Gangbangers killing gangbangers. And people are like, oh, it's just gangbangers. Those are still people. Those still are people, still that people that, you know what? Yep. God put them on this earth for a reason. I believe, you know, and whatever that reason is, if they didn't fulfill that reason, that purpose, I can't imagine standing in front of our creator, whoever, whatever you believe that entity to be, and being unable to account for the gifts and the talents that I was born with that I didn't use to make the world a better place. So I, I can't imagine all the death that I saw, all the, the people that were killed, the homicide scenes I've been on, think, you know, that 19-year-old, that kid never started to live his life, and now he's dead. You're like, no, I, I'm going to live my life the best I can, as fulfilled as I can, with as many loving, caring people around me as I can. And then when it's my time, there's an old uh, Native American Blackfoot 
proverb that goes, when you were born, you cried and the world rejoiced. Live your life in such a way so that when you die, the world cries and you rejoice. That's what I want my life to be. That's pretty profound, actually. That's very profound. I'm going to have to write that down when I edit this <laughs> and put it right up here on my computer screen. There you go. Yeah, it's it's interesting because as a as a cop, as you and I both know, we see the worst in people and we see the best people at their worst yep. on a consistent basis. Um, you know, in the area that I worked in, the Colorado Springs area and uh, within El Paso County, we didn't have as much as you may have, as you had in Cincinnati, but it still takes place and it still took place. Sure. And I'm probably just like you. I can look back on every face, every individual, every person, every kid, and still see and understand and know their story. So when I was faced with the same thing that you're faced with, where I had a prospect that said, you will never walk again, you're not going to do this again, you're not going to do that again, the pain, the surgeries, every time I had to go face another surgery, same, I went through the same thing. So the the aspect of, of living life to the fullest is an important aspect because life can change in an instant, as we know. And that instant, you know, that's the whole purpose of one more thing before you go. The whole purpose of this podcast. You may not have that opportunity to say what you wanted to say, do what you wanted to do, it can change in an instant. You need to make life the best it can be every minute that you're here, every minute that you're doing something. You need to either interact with people, move forward, make your life, help make their lives count. Right. And their lives count. You're right. There, there's a, a, a great story. I don't know if you've, you've ever heard of the, the Alexander the Great story. I, I don't know. If, uh, I'll, I, don't think I've heard it. I, I really kind of, it, it's so anyway, so Alexander is probably one of the greatest conquerors in the world and, and probably killed more people than Hitler and all that kind of stuff. But Alexander's at the end of his life and he's dying and he summons his counselors and he asks them to carry out his final three wishes. And his first wish is that only his physicians carry his coffin to the grave. His second wish is that when his coffin's on the way to the cemetery, that the path leading to that cemetery be strewn with gold and silver and precious stones. And his final wish is that both of his hands be left hanging out of his coffin. When one of his counselors asks him, you know, Alexander, you've made some strange wishes. What's the deal here? This is how he supposedly responded. He said, I'd like the world to know what I've learned. I want my physicians to carry my coffin to show people that no doctor can cure anybody. They are powerless to save a person from the grip of death. People should take life, should not take life for granted and should be responsible for their own health. Regarding his second wish, he said, I want people to understand not an ounce of my gold will be coming with me to the next life. I spent my entire existence centered on greed and power, but can take none of that wealth with me. Let people realize it is sheer stupidity to chase fortune. And finally, concerning his hands hanging outside of his coffin, he replied, I want people to see my hands and to understand that I came into this world empty handed and I now leave it in the same manner. And I think that story of Alexander illustrates really what's important in life. There's a reason they call it the practice of medicine. 
You know, the noted theologian and physician Albert Schweitzer is reported to have said that the doctor of the future will be oneself. You know this and I know this. Our bodies are amazing machines. They can take a tremendous amount of damage and continue to move forward and continue to go on. Doctors can help us in in becoming healthy, but they just merely assist in making ourselves whole or healthy. Alexander the Great also knew that wealth and power and prestige were fleeting. No matter how prestigious or prosperous or influential you may be, you won't be able to take any of that money or importance with you beyond the grave. Regardless of your social status, you'll eventually occupy the same small plot of dirt that the pauper does who's buried next to you. And finally, we come into this world with the breath in our lungs, the thoughts in our minds, and the love in our hearts. Nobody's born with a silver spoon in their hands, and we pretty much depart life more or less the same way that we entered it. So, you know, Alexander knew all this, and he wanted to impart his wisdom to those that he left behind. And I really think that story kind of epitomizes the things that we've been talking about. What's really important in life, and, and what can we do to make that life as good or as the, the best possible life we can live? I, that's extraordinary. I'm glad you shared that. That's pretty cool. I'm going to have to do a little more research on Alexander the Great now. Yeah. Well, you have, speaking of that, you yourself have a passion with your time. I'm sorry, I, did, I missed that. You yourself have a passion uh, with your time, like what to share with people, don't you? I, I, I do. I mean, my, my passion really now is to, to kind of help people find and, and, you know, we've talked about this a little bit, kind of find and live their purpose. I remember the uh, Mark Twain had another, I like quotes, as you, as you can probably tell. Um, but he had one of the greatest quotes that I, I think I've ever heard. And, and this is what he said. He said, the two most important days of our lives are the day that we're born and the day that we figure out why. You know, and, and I've really kind of thought about that a lot. And and I, I, I mentioned this earlier. I said, you know, when I, when I talk to people, I ask them, you know, why do you think you were born? And maybe more importantly, why do you think you were born at this time? There's a reason you were born. And that reason involves finding and living your purpose. I believe that we're all destined to live an uncommon and extraordinary life. And that has nothing to do with the type of job we have, how much money we make, what kind of house we live in, what kind of car we drive, et cetera. We are not all born with the same gifts and talents, but we all have the ability to become the best person that we're capable of becoming. The problem is, is that most people take an unintentional approach to living, and by living a casual life, their dreams, their goals, their ambitions, they become a casualty of that unplanned living. I've had plenty of time to think about my own death. And, you know, in all the years of battling cancer, after I die, and I, I mentioned this earlier, I can't imagine standing in the presence of our creator and being unable to account for the gifts and the talents that I was born with. As a police officer, and I'm, I'm sure this is, this is true with you, and with the number of years that I've been fighting cancer, I have undoubtedly seen many people die. And it's been my experience that the people who die what you and I would probably call peaceful deaths are those who utilize their time on this earth to find and live their purpose. On the other hand, many of the people who I've observed go kicking and screaming from this world you know, who wanted another day or another month or another year, 
those were people who never did anything with their lives. They never saw the urgency of living their uncommon and extraordinary purpose. They never took a chance on their dreams. They never took the time to figure out who they were, why they were here, and what they were supposed to do with their life. It's been said that the wealthiest places on earth are our cemeteries because their areas rich in businesses never started, books never written, relationships never pursued, and dreams never realized. I mentioned that Native American Blackfoot saying to you before, the only way we can find our purpose is to search it out, to try things that make us uncomfortable, to fight against the status quo, to basically experience things that scare you. You're never going to grow if you do the same thing every day. You have to do things that scare you. I, I, people have asked me you know, about this, and I always tell them, if you're thinking of doing something and it scares you, then you should go ahead and do it. Finding your why is essential because it's the reason that you were born. And the only way to discover that reason is to be open to it and search for it with your heart. I agree with that. And that could be anything. I had to read, just like you, you had to redefine your life. I had to redefine mine after I was forced to retire from the police department. Right. And I started this podcast about a year, well, almost two years ago now. Okay. Okay. And it was scary. I didn't think I was going to get any downloads. I didn't think I was going to get anybody to listen. I didn't think I was going to get anybody to interview. Um, over a probably three-week, four about four-week time period, just recently, actually, over a four-week time period uh, during the COVID, I interviewed 50 people. Wow. <laughs> so it's kind of one of those things that you just have to take that opportunity. You have to take that step. The thing that I say, my mantra is the first step to failure is the one you never take. Absolutely. So, you know, you have to move forward. If you don't take that step, you don't move forward. You don't go anywhere. So you need to explore. I agree with you. Yeah. It's, you know, the, you said it yourself. Um, I think in the notes that you had sent me about the biggest impediment to our, and the obstacles to our own success are ourselves. And, and that's you, true. And, and if you think about that, you know, we all know this. Our brains are hardwired to avoid pain and discomfort and to seek pleasure. To our minds, the status quo is comfortable and familiar and should just be left alone. And, and I always try to use this example of, of, you know, we all know people that are stuck in dead-end jobs that like to, to be working somewhere else. But these people, they stay put. And I always want to know why. why. Why are you doing that? And I'd suggest it's because that every time they decide to find new employment, their brain kicks in and starts pointing out all the reasons that they should stay right where they are. You know, things like, hey, you're making good money or you're accustomed to the routines or, you know, the work is easy or, you know what, you go somewhere else, you might not get along with your coworkers. Whatever the reason to the brain, a new job presents all types of uncertainty and uncomfortableness. If you're in a position that you can't stand and it would make sense for you to explore new opportunities, your brain is going to fight you on making that change. And I think this is a real important point. I, I even made this a chapter in my book. The problem with most people is they think with their fears and their insecurities instead of using their minds. I mean, we've all done it. I'm afraid. I don't want to do that. So I'm not going to do it. Well, that's that. I really do want to do that. But my fear or my insecurities are keeping me from doing that. We don't like to live in an uncomfortable state. 
but that's the only place where real growth can occur. I mentioned when I high school coaching days, when I was coaching high school basketball, I used to always tell my players, you need to become comfortable with being uncomfortable. As such, I'd move players in and out of drills that I knew caused them anxiety. I wanted them to be uneasy, not because I was trying to get them to fail, but because I wanted them to realize that they could succeed at something that made them apprehensive. The only way that we can grow, the only way that we can push past those comfort zones is to do what we find unpleasant and undesirable. It's in those painful and challenging and sometimes, let's face it, embarrassing moments that real growth can occur. I'm going to really date myself now, but back in 1976, the U.S. gold medal winning Olympic swimmer by the name of Shirley Babishaw had one of the greatest quotes I ever heard. And this is what she said. Winners think about what they want to happen and losers think about what they don't want to happen. Winners can override their brains and focus on the things that they want to occur. Losers focus on the negative aspects of competition and they can't see the positive qualities of pursuing a goal or a dream. To become successful in life, your purpose has to be bigger than your pain. And I try to put this in a, in a very simple concept. And it's, it, it's like this. If you were to go to a gym, pick up a 10-pound weight and do 10 arm curls, but you didn't find that movement difficult, then your muscle's never going to grow. However, if you go to that same gym, pick up that 10, same 10-pound 10 weight and do arm curls until you exhaust your muscle and can't do another rep, you're stressing that muscle. And as a result, it will grow and get stronger. That same tactic works with your mind. If you stress your mind by doing uncomfortable things, it will grow, it will develop, and you will become a much stronger individual. Well, and your perseverance and your challenges were tested again when you had an amputation of a leg because of your situation. I did. I, I, I had had a, a, a procedure. So when the, the interferon was stopped, um, <laughs> In, in 2017, the cancer came back. I tried a biologic medicine. It didn't work. And in January of 2018, my left foot was amputated. Um, the cancer came back again in 2019 in my shin. Um, it was cut out. They didn't get it all. And so they, they tried a very rare procedure where they went in through my femoral artery and vein and used basically a, like a, a pump that you would use when you did open heart surgery, and they circulated chemotherapy through my leg for about an hour. And they got all the cancer that they knew was there. However, I had an undiagnosed tumor in my ankle that grew large enough that it fractured my tibia. And in April of this year, right in the middle of, of COVID, um, being the only surgery in the hospital that day without being able to have my wife or anybody with me, my leg was amputated above the knee. And fortunately, I had a, a great doctor. He, we went to a hospital that did not accept COVID patients. And he said, you know, normally you'd be in the hospital for a week learning how to, to balance and to use a walker and all that kind of stuff. He's like, you're going to be in the hospital for 48 hours and you're gone. And I, I remember working with the therapists and they were pulling their hair out. They were like, you know, you need to be here more, you know, more time. You need to be here longer. And I'm like, you got to teach me everything you can in 48 hours because I'm out of here. So it was frustrating for them. But believe me, I didn't want to hang around any longer than I than I had to. I don't blame you 
at all. You, uh, all through all of your journey, through all of your experiences, um, I know you wrote a book. I did, and and, and this is really kind of funny. And and I, I mean, it's it's not it's not funny. That's not the right word. But from the funny time that um, I had my leg amputated, and part of the testing for that tumor in my ankle, um, I also had a PET scan, and it was found that I had tumors in my lungs as well. So. So I was kind of fighting cancer on, on two fronts from that perspective. And I, from the time that I had my leg amputated in April to the time I, I was able to heal and then start chemotherapy in June, I wrote this book. And I really feel um, I wrote the book, but the book was inspired by something that was much bigger than me. And um, I am, I, I still to this day can't believe that, that I wrote it. I mean, it literally was about three months that I wrote this book and, and a kind of an interesting story with both of us being in law enforcement. Uh, I became friends with a gentleman here who was, um, in the command staff at the Dayton police department when I was at the Cincinnati police department. And he introduced me to an individual who had been, uh, head of a drug task force down in Louisiana and eventually became a police chief in a small town in Louisiana as well. And one day, one of his friends said, hey, would you come out to California and give a presentation to a group of authors who want to understand how police tactics work so they can incorporate it in their, in their writings and sound like they know what they're talking about? He's like, sure, no problem. So he ends up going out there to California and ends up meeting his wife. And his wife has written like 34 best-selling fiction books. And they he got out of law enforcement, uh, became a, a minister. Uh, they now have their own church. Well, they also set up a not-for-profit publishing company. And so uh, my friend here introduced me to him. We talked for quite a while. Super nice guy, Scott Silveria. Um, and he you know, we basically came to an agreement about publishing the book and how we would go about it. And the fact that his wife had all that experience of, of being published and what worked and what didn't work. I, I am, I've learned a lot about the publishing business in, in the last couple of months. And, and there, there's a lot to, to understand, especially with Amazon and all their, their algorithms and, and things like that. So it, it's been a great experience for me and, and very rewarding. And like, you know, I wrote the book to try to help people. I didn't write it to try to make money or do anything like that. And and I, I hope um, from the feedback that I've gotten, it sounds like most people find it to be beneficial. What's the name of your book? The book is called Sustainable Excellence, um, 10 Principles to Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. And your motivation, you have a specific motivation for, for that I did. Actually, it, it really kind of came out of two conversations I had. One was a, um, a conversation I had with a former point guard that I had who she went to the University of Georgia and then she and her uh, fiance moved out to Colorado here. And, and my wife and I had had dinner with them. And, and I remember sending her a text and I'm like, I'm really excited that you're here in Colorado and, and I can watch you find and live your purpose. And there was kind of this long pause and she kind of came back to me and she's like, well, Coach, what do you think my purpose is? And I said, I, I don't know. I don't know what your purpose is. I said, but that's what your life should be about, finding and living that purpose. And 
I, I told her, I said, you know, some people know immediately, you know, I'm going to be a doctor or I'm going to follow in, you know, my, my father's business or my mother's business or whatever. Some people have no idea what they want to do with their lives. And I reminded her, you know, Colonel Harlan Sanders, who founded Kentucky Fried Chicken, did that after he retired. Now, I don't know if Kentucky Fried Chicken was his purpose or not. Probably it was. But, you know, he was in his 60s, mid to late 60s by the time he founded that company. And, you know, can you imagine searching your whole life for your purpose and and not quitting and not giving up? And we all know people who are, you know, they're, as we talked earlier, they're dead. I mean, they do the same thing day in and day out. They quit. They give up on life. They're like, I'm just here. I'm just marking time. I don't want to be that person. I don't want, I didn't want my point guard to be that person. And then I had another conversation with an individual, a basketball player from the Citadel who reached out to me on LinkedIn and kind of wanted to know my thoughts on what things he should, should know or he should um, understand to not only be successful in business, but also to be successful in life. And I thought about it for a while and I didn't want to give him the, the standard stuff that's that's all been out there. And 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 so I started writing things down. And as I said before, you know, one of the chapters is, you know, most people think with their fears and their insecurities instead of using their minds. And, and I came up with these 10 principles and then I looked at them and I thought, you know, I have a a life experience story about that or a, a law enforcement story about that, or I know somebody who you know, would emulate that. And all of a sudden I had a book. It really, I really didn't start out to write a book. I just, those two kind of conversations came together and a book was born. So the book was born. Yeah. Well, that's, that's outstanding. Actually. I think that what you have to say and what you have in writing, I've not read the book yet, but I plan on buying it and reading it. Um, it kind of gives an opportunity for people to understand that you can overcome, you can manage your life in a better, positive way if you're faced with challenges and struggles. Right, because we're, we're all faced with challenges and struggles. I, I don't care what it is. And, and there's a story in, in the book about a friend of mine um, when I was in healthcare administration and uh, I was in law school with her husband and um, it turns out we lived close together and, and, and things like that. And she was preparing for this big wedding and she, she was exhausted all the time. And she just kind of wrote it off to, I'm, I'm doing all this stuff and I'm trying to work a full-time job and all that. When she got back from the honeymoon, she still felt that same way, ended up going to the doctor and she had um, chronic myelogenous leukemia, CML. And went to all the best specialists in, in the country and and eventually got to a point where they're like, if you want to be cured, you're going to have to have a bone marrow transplant. And bone marrow transplantation at that time was pretty new. It was pretty much in its infancy. And she had a choice. She's like, you know, you're in remission now. They had found a match for her and you have a choice. You can probably live now in remission two or three good years, or you can take a chance on this new technology, this new procedure. And if it's successful, you'll probably live another, you know, 50, 60, 70 years. And she was in her 30s when she, very early 30s. And she took a chance. She took a chance on this, this new procedure. They put her in a clean room, wiped out her entire immune system, gave her this new marrow, and it was working. We were all excited. I mean, she was looking better. She was feeling better. And then 
what happens sometimes with this is a, a, a the, the body turned on the marrow. It's called graft versus host disease. And I remember standing, I may get a, a little emotional about this. I remember standing in the back of her hospital room on the day that she died, being there with her family when the doctor turned off the 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 machine to you know the heart monitor and that and and pronounced her dead. And I I to this day I think back on if she knew she was gonna die, would she have made a different decision? And I don't think she would have. I mean, she was she was a woman full of hell, full of life. And, you know, it was like two years with her new husband had been great. But now I'm going to take a chance on 50 years with my husband or 60 years with my husband and that. And, you know, it, it's a shame that she died. But, you know, people always look at me and say, boy, you have a lot of courage. <laughs> she had a lot of courage. I would say so. I would say so. Typically, when we when we get close to the end of the conversation, I usually um, ask the question that this is one more thing before you go. And if there was anything that you feel is more important um, that you feel that needs to be said to anybody or anything, but you kind of just said all that. Yeah. I, I, I mean, you know, you and I could go on for hours with, with stories and stuff like that. And, and I, you know, there's some really good ones in the book that, you know, I think are things that I, experienced or things that friends of mine experienced and things like that. And, and I just, you know, I, I, I usually a lot of times I'll end the podcast with the, the, the Wyatt Earp story, you know, and, and things like that. But I, I remember Lou Holtz, the former Notre Dame football coach, he said, you know, you have a right to fail, but you don't have the right to make others fail. You know, if, if your professional life or your personal life or your family life, Want, if you want that to be better, then you need to be better. I always believe, as I said this before, we're, we're born to lead uncommon and extraordinary lives. But to do that, you need to control your mind. You need to embrace the pain and the suffering in your life. And you need to do the things that scare you and that, quite frankly, you don't want to do. You need to keep moving forward and remind yourself that as long as you don't quit, you're never going to be defeated. Stuart Scott, the ESPN reporter who died a few years ago of cancer, had another great quote that I love. He said, don't downgrade your dreams to fit your reality. Upgrade your convictions to match your destiny. I always ask people to think about the big picture of their life. What will your legacy be? Uh, don't die before you're dead. We, we talked about that before. You know, what will be that one sentence that people will say about you at your funeral? You are that person you're looking to become. Let your life be shaped by the decisions that you make, not by the ones that you didn't or the ones that others made for you. Those are amazing words of wisdom. I will make sure that the link to your Amazon book uh, will be in the show notes and I'll make sure it's on my website as well. And uh, that way people should go and uh, kind of explore that option, I believe. Check out Terry's book. And if you have any questions, do you have a website, Terry? I do. Um, it, it's called motivationalcheck.com. Um, and my I have social media accounts. They're all linked to that. So motivationalcheck.com. You can find my website. I have a thought for the day every day. You can email me at motivationalcheck at AOL.com. Um, and, you know, if, and, I, and I get emails from people all the day wanting to know about either my circumstance or, or their circumstance and what I think about it. And, and I'm real reluctant to try to step into somebody else's shoes. You know, we all, 
we all suffer. We all deal with pain differently in that. But if there's something you want to know or, you know, I, I mean, I'm I'm probably dying. And and in all honesty, I'm kind of happy about that. That I, I don't want to die. I don't want to go any quicker. But I'm really kind of excited about what might be on the other side of this life. So it doesn't scare me as much as I think it scares a lot of people. Well, I appreciate the fact that you shared that journey with us and that you were able to help maybe impart some wisdom upon, wisdom upon others that are either experiencing it or about to take the same journey. So well, thank, thank you, you for much. having me. I enjoyed it. It's been fantastic. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. That's beforeyougopodcast.com. Tell your story, share your expertise, contribute to the blog, and subscribe to the newsletter. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform. And one more thing before you go. Have a nice day, have a nice week, and thanks for listening. One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life podcast, is a creation of One More Thing Productions, established 2010, all rights reserved.